Ghostly Thistle presents The Antique Shop Episode 17 The Past There's a picture in the shop Picture is probably the wrong word. It's more like a painting. Done in pencil or charcoal. It has no colour. But the curve of the blackened lines and the smoothing of the shadow give it an enticing depth. I must have walked past this image hundreds of times since I started working in the shop and never seemed to notice it before that day. It's wee... Barely bigger than an A4 sheet of paper. Kept within a simple, dark wooden frame that doesn't seem as old as the picture itself. There is no date in the corner. No sneaky artist's initials hidden within the shaded lines. It's quite unassuming. Quite simple. Wouldn't you look at a place in someone's home studio? Something they created in their spare time? For some reason, that day, this picture captures my attention. It's set a bit further back for the path through the antiques. No quite buried, but no in your face either. It's leaning against a pile of good housekeeping magazines for the thirties. No quite facing where I'm standing, slightly aft to the right, as if towards the door. Carefully, I find a place to put my foot, between wicker baskets and chairs, so I can lean over and reach the frame. After nearly losing my balance, I finally manage to grasp the frame and return to the main pathway to inspect it. The shop has a lot of paintings, some in big carved frames picturing places and people from mythology and folklore. Others are small, simple, and contains sailing boats bobbing on the soft waters during a sunset. This one is different. The blackened charcoal lines show a town square, surrounded on all sides by buildings. There's blurry outlines of people walking around. The buildings are three or four storeys high, have thatched roofs and windows with diamond-shaped mullions. On the outside you can see the timber frames, the exposed skeleton, and some are sagging in places, or completely crooked, with it looking like the floor is built on a slope. Some of the buildings appear to be shop fronts, more like market stalls, whilst the top floors have washing hanging out, and even the faint outline of people. Out of all the small details, The one thing that stands out is the object standing in the middle of the courtyard. One wee thing in a sweeping snapshot that simultaneously causes awe and revulsion. It looked like gallows. I can't really explain what happened next. The painting was in the centre of my vision. The thatched roofs, the cloudy smudged sky, the blursy people. But slowly, the edges of the frame seeped out, the image enlarged. 
I felt like I was being swallowed whole, my body being pulled forwards. The next thing I remember, I'm still looking down at my hands, except they're empty. No wooden frame, no charcoal picture. The ground beneath my feet is also no the wooden boards of the shop, but condensed mud, dampened by rain, puddles here and there. I look up, expecting to see the antique chairs and vanity table, even the magazines the picture had been leaning against. Instead, I find old buildings, roofs the colour of the wheat in the fields, the outsides washed white, skeletal wooden frames showing the crooked floors. I begin to realise that I'm in the painting. The world here isn't as black and white as the drawing. Everything's in colour, even the people. There is one difference between what I was seeing and the picture. The gallows in the middle of the square are gone. I'm no different to anyone else who has a shallow knowledge of history. You think olden times and you assume dark, drear, filthy conditions where nobody knows how to smile and everyone lives in fear of God. There are people about, but they're dressed in colour, in muted pinks, pungent crimsons and natural blues. Women have their heads covered and men wear caps. I feel like I've been flung into a Shakespearean play, except I didn't know what part I'm supposed to play. When I look down, I'm still dressed in my usual jeans and t-shirt, but no one's staring at me. In fact, no one's even looking in my direction. I'm at a loss on what I should do. I didn't know how I got here, so how the hell was I supposed to get out? Was this even real? Was I just hallucinating? For a start, there were noises, a rarity in the shop. People scuffing their leather shoes against the mud or stepping in the puddles left over for the rain. The thud as a horse walked heavily by, carrying a man wearing a cloak. The faint creak of the windows as they were opened outwards. The smells on the air were the unpleasant. The scent of recent rain lingered. A feeling of damp encircling me. I realised that there was nothing else to do but explore, see if I couldn't find a way back for whatever was going on. Before I could take a single step, I heard a voice fay behind me. I felt like I recognised this voice. I'd heard it before somewhere. Instinctively, I turned around and saw two well-dressed women walking towards me. One was younger than the other, no much older than me, a wee bit taller. I couldn't see her hair because of the white linen cap that hid it, but her eyes were an eerie shady blue, so light they almost disappeared into the white. I'd seen those eyes before, seen them in that face, seen them frosty, seen them sparkle wee mirth. This young woman was Madame Norna. I'm pretty sure my mouth was open as the two women walked past me. The older one I didn't recognise, but I could have swore she gave me a glance. But it was so quick I may have imagined it. I felt like calling out, but what would I say? What would I even call her? Was she even the madam now? 
I decided to follow the two, hoping they wouldn't notice. As we moved away through the square and down one of the streets, it became muddier beneath my feet. My shoes stained way brown that I was hoping was just mud. The more people I passed, the more I began to realise that I wasn't being stared at. This place, this town, was obviously in the past. Yet I was dressed in thoroughly modern clothes and no one even looked at me. To test my theory, I even went up to a smart-dressed man and spoke to him, but he walked straight past me like I was invisible. I did try and walk through walls, only to be stopped by them. I was literally an invisible person. At least I could speak, although it wasn't as if anyone could hear me. I continued to follow Madame Norna and the older woman until they arrived at a shop front. There was a small section that looked as though it could open, not unlike a market stall. There was no name painted above or on a sign, so I had no idea what it was. The door was left open after the two women slipped inside. I didn't know what shops were like back then, but this is far from what I'd ever imagined. And it all looked familiar somehow. Felt familiar. The placement of the walls, of the wooden counter, the shelves behind it packed with glass jars and wooden trays labelled with names I couldn't even read. Fay the outside, I'd have thought it'd be smaller on the inside. But it was cavernous, stretching further back than I'd expected. In one corner, there was a loom. A large wooden structure strung up with hundreds of wee threads. A small stool placed before it. Deeper inside was a bench, more white thread and tiny wee boards filled with pins, the threads winding between them in a lace-like pattern. The next bench was more practical, filled with hammers, chisels and tools I couldn't name, small pins littered everywhere. It seemed that every surface was used to make a different thing. There were shelves filled with rolls of fabric, reams of lace and tendrils of ribbons. It felt like I'd be able to find anything if I just looked hard enough. My concentration was captured by the two women who were tying each other's aprons and fixing their linen caps. A very young Madame Norna was talking about something although her voice wasn't as soft as I was used to. She was telling the older woman that they were expected in the tune next, and that they'd arrive soon. No idea who they were, but for the concerned look pulling her brows together, I didn't think they were welcome visitors. The older woman told her naughty fash, a word my granny used to use when she'd tell someone naughty worry, and that everything would be fine. Young Madame Norna didn't look convinced. The older woman then called her Isabel, instructing her to make up Master MacReady's prescription. Isabel? That was Madame Norna's real name? This was before she'd become Madame? I began to look about the shop, at all of the things in it, at the walls, the floor, even towards the doorway at the back, and I began to realise this was the antique shop. Practically the same in everything but contents. 
When something black and four-legged jumped on the countertop, startling Isabel, I felt my mouth hang open again. Young Madame Norna scolded Kronos for giving her a fright. Kronos. No, that couldn't be the same cat. Maybe all cats in the shop were called that, like Madame Norna? Somehow, I was more inclined to believe that the wee shite was as old as the hills. Nay wonder he's so good at cards. When I saw the older woman moving in my direction, I leaped out of the way, and again, I could have swore she made eye contact. She made her way over to the loom, sat down in front of it, and began to throw the shuttle back and forth, the wooden parts clacking rhythmically. If Isabel was being called by her name, and this was the antique shop, then this woman must be current to the time madam, right? I say older woman, but she wasn't even that old. Early forties at the latest. She had green eyes, like me, and lightish blonde hair. At least her eyebrows were. The linen cap covered most her heed. I wasn't standing round for long before someone else came into the shop. Another woman, a wee bit older, with grey hair peeking out from beneath her head covering. Isabel greeted her by name, and the two started the usual chit-chat that comes with being a regular customer. Whilst Isabel was busying behind the counter, the older woman began to muse that a woman called Margaret Aitken was being wheeled into tune by the witch hunters. She continued that people in the tune were already reporting neighbours, family, friends, and more importantly, enemies, to the authorities prior to their arrival. I haven't heard the name Margaret Aitken since I was a bairn in school. She was the heed of the second wavy national witch trials in Scotland. After being accused of being a witch, she then claimed she could identify other witches. And so the witch hunters began to travel round Scotland, getting her to throw other people under the bus, on the promise that she'd be pardoned for doing so. She was nay, and after being exposed as a liar by people in Glasgow, she was killed. She still managed to throw hundreds of innocent people onto the pyre, though. Isabel, after handing over a linen pouch to the woman that smelled like dried weeds asked when this witch-hunting party was due. In the next two days, according to the woman. Young Madame Norna looked understandably worried and glanced at her boss for reassurance, which came as confidently as it had the first time. Dinny Fash, all will be well. Time was near the same for me as it was to the world around me. One minute it was morning, and the next dusk had begun to settle into the overcast sky. The madam dismissed Isabel, telling her to go home, and curious, I followed. Back past the courtyard, through the streets, down narrow alleys, until we reached a close, we washing hanging over our heads and bairns playing and running about. The damp was worse here. There was a distinct waft of mould with every breath I took and the air didn't feel as fresh as it had before. This part of town was by no means slum-like. The ground was relatively clean. The people we passed well turned out. 
Here, it felt like poverty was an ever-constant possibility should one thing go wrong, one bad decision made. These people weren't poor, but they were probably barely getting by. Isabel opened a dark wooden door and stepped inside to an even darker hallway, barely lit by the dying light outside. Fae memory, she strode her way over to the stairs and made her way up them. It took my eyes a while to adjust, and I may have tripped over a few stairs on my journey after her. The rooms her family occupied were on the first floor, and although no cramped, it wasn't spacious either. It wasn't improved by the sheer number of people inside. The door opened onto a room, a stone fireplace on the opposite wall that was roaring away, a pot balanced on a tripod over it. There was a large wooden table in the middle, chairs on either side and one at the very top. A woman sat in one of these chairs, white linen in one hand and a needle and thread in the other. She greeted Isabel as she came in and told her to do something. There were bairns everywhere and I didn't mean that metaphorically. There were a few on the floor playing wee wooden figurines. A few at the table, also wee needle and thread, sewing scrap pieces of fabric. And I could hear voices coming through one of the doors that led away through this room. I observed as Isabel weaved and wound her way over to the fire, avoiding the bairns, and began to arrange pots, pans and plates. Time skipped forwards as I lingered near the doorway, and a man appeared. A wee bit older than the woman, who I assumed to be Isabel and the other bairns' ma, he sat at the head of the table. The fire crackled in the background, and a few candles were lit on the table, although the room was still dull, illuminated only by flickering amber light. The large family, perhaps eight or nine, ate dinner. Isabel appeared to be one of the oldest, with a lad that looked to be a year or two older sitting further down the table. The patriarchy of this family eyed his eldest daughter for a few seconds before he spoke. He announced that he and his wife had begun speaking with the Flemings about their son, who was currently a draper's apprentice somewhere in the town. The mother chimed in, saying that he was a nice, polite lad and would make a good husband. I couldn't help but cringe at this conversation. I mean, I know arranged marriages were all the rage in the past, but actually seeing how these conversations went was a wee bit painful. Both parents explained that it was a good match, he was a good lad, and that his father had agreed to let them stay in his house after they married. The dowry was yet to be discussed, but it had been mentioned that Isabel would have to gee up her own job once she was married. Isabel looked as happy about that as I was. She let her parents speak, praise the virtues of the Flemings and their son, and about married life. I couldn't tell if they were trying to convince their daughter or themselves. Isabel remained quiet, much like she did as Madame Norna, and nodded her head in agreement from time to time. But I could sense something else a knowledge that her parents didn't have. It was like she knew that she'd never have to marry the Fleming's son. She knew that all of this marriage talk would come to nothing. 
Did she already know about the fate of a madam? Did she already know that this life her parents wanted fair would be unlived? Time began to skip forwards again, like someone pressing a button on a remote control. Dinner was cleared away, the fire was doused, the family packed into their beds, some of the younger bairns laying out on the floor beside the last embers of the fire. Then the daylight came, the overcast sky turned from dark to grey, and one by one the family began to leave their home, including Isabel. I followed her through the streets back to the shop, but it was busier this time. People had emerged from their shops and homes, stopped on their journeys to witness as the dark parade arrived with their crosses and sermons and death. As we walked through the main town square, there was a queue of people outside one of the buildings, men dressed in dark drab-coloured clothes directing them where to go. The customer had been right. People were queuing to report witches. That's when I began to worry. I know the history. People killed for being witches were innocent, or so I used to think. But what about the madam? If anything looked like witchcraft, it was the antique shop and the woman who ran it. Was that how this story ended? I knew Isabel survived, but what about the old madam? Isabel arrived at the empty shop, the madam and Kronos going about their business. This old madam Norna was always in the shop during the day, unlike my madam. Customers came and went, but most were regular customers, buying lace, fabric or something in the jars and wooden trays behind the counter. When a younger woman ploughed through the front door, wearing distress like a cloak, I guessed that even in the 16th century, the shop had special customers. Prior to the invention of business cards, this woman took a quick glance at Isabel before searching round and finding the madam. When she stated, frantically, that she needed her help, I felt that the walls between this time and mine became thinner. The customer was invited over to one of the many tables that occupied the shop. I half expected Isabel to retreat somewhere and make a pot of tea, until I remembered that tea wouldn't be introduced to this country for another century at least. The customer sat on one side of the table, whilst the madam and Isabel sat on the other. With tears in her eyes, some streaming down her cheeks, the young customer explained that her ma had just been arrested by the witch hunters, as someone had accused her of cursing their cattle and crops. The woman insisted that her ma wasn't a witch, that she just had a temper, and that was all. It's unusual for me no to believe customers. I had seen what curses could do back in my own life, with the customers a few hundred years down the line. Did this woman know for sure that her ma hadn't cursed the cattle and crops? I didn't know much about people who have the ability to make their curses come true, but I'll admit it was unlikely this customer's ma was one of them. Predictably, the young woman pleaded with Madame Norna to save her ma, explaining with a dangerous promise that she'd do anything. 
My curiosity was piqued at this. It's not like we're ever going to get a customer like this in the shop. How would Madame Norna help this lassie and her ma? I scanned round the shop once more, for the hundredth time, and was genuinely disappointed when I couldn't see the cabinet that was occupying the front room in my version of the shop. Was there a candle, a pendant, an incense stick that could be lit and erase all charges of witchcraft? My curiosity quickly turned bitter in my mouth when the madam explained that she couldn't help. I wasn't the only one with a disappointed reaction, and immediately the customer protested, then pleaded, then begged, then cursed, then left. Isabel hadn't said a word, so she was already a better apprentice than I am. After she was sure the customer wouldn't return, she glanced to the madam, doubt brimming in her eyes. After a moment's silence, she asked why help had been refused, reasoning that if anyone could help, then it would be them. It should be them. They'd helped people out of worse situations. Old Madame Norna stared at her hands for a while with an unreadable expression. It was easy to think she didn't care, that perhaps altruism wasn't necessarily a requirement to a madam. Like all shops, the right to refuse custom also applied here. Perhaps it was too difficult to interfere, would put the shop at risky exposure. I'd never seen my madam refuse to help any customer, and surely this wasn't the time to refuse. Eventually, the old Madame Norna turned her body slightly to face her apprentice, inspecting her, like the Madame did to me on the occasions I challenged her. This Madame wasn't cross with Isabel, wasn't angry. Her face was calm, controlled. She explained that she couldn't help this time, as this time was different to others. The people found guilty of witchcraft during these trials were fated to die, and the one thing the madams couldn't do was interfere with fate. Protect it, observe it, correct it when it strayed, but no change it. A part of me was curious what happened if a madam did try to interfere, and the smarter part of me knew it wouldn't end well. Isabel accepted this answer with a begrudging resignation of someone with few other choices. Even I didn't know what I'd do were I in her position. Jailbreak, dramatic court scene, nothing realistic. I remembered what the madam had told me about fate, that there are fixed points in people's lives that they must go through. If they stray for the path, and they get corrected by the cogs of the universe. I presumed that death was one of these points. And everyone knows how inescapable death is. The rest of the day, which passes quickly for me, is spent in uncomfortable silence as the turmoil of the town and the witch hunters seeps through the door in bits and pieces, through whispers and rumours. When Isabel leaves to go home, I didn't follow her this time. I'm almost too scared to. Which apprentice are you then? Because you aren't mine. 
A voice echoes round the shop. I turn slowly to face the old madam and she's looking directly at me this time. It frightens me more. I quickly became used to being a fly on the wall, an invisible audience, so being addressed directly unsettled me and it takes me longer than it should to form a reply. I nod, wordlessly. The old madam surmises that I'm Faith far in the future and I explain that I'm Isabel's apprentice. The rest of the story tumbles from my mouth as I ask her how I got back to my own time and out of this nightmare land. The way she smiled at me reminded me of my madam, the kind of resigned smile after they understand that they're dealing with a complete Egypt. She tells me it's simple. Someone will probably have noticed I'm gone by now. If I go back to the spot I arrived, I'd probably be retrieved. Incredulously, I checked what would happen if no one had noticed I was gone. The answer was that if I wished hard enough, I'd go back. I wasn't supposed to be here. I didn't fit. And fate didn't like people playing fast and loose with time. So, just like Dorothy, if I wished to return, fate'd be more than happy to help. I thank the old madam, glance at Kronos, suddenly feeling a pangy missing my version, and exit the shop. Time has shifted again, the darkening sky has reversed. The constant heavy cloud that's dominated the sky since my arrival is now breaking into dawn. Slashes a orange and red cutting across the clouds. Hastily, I make my way back to the town square, which is deserted so early in the morning. The queue snitches has vanished, and the red light of the dawn touches the whitewashed houses with their strange windows and crooked floors. Across the courtyard, trying to remember the exact spot I'd appeared in, when I noticed someone standing in the spot I think was the right one. As I get closer, I recognise Isabel, with her linen cap pinned neatly to her hair, and her blue eyes darting between what's in her hand and the scene in front of her. With a pencil, she's drawing in a wee leather-bound book, hands sliding over the strangely textured paper. Curiously, I sneak round her and take a peek over her shoulder. On the page is a smaller version of the picture that got me here in the first place. Like the first sketch of an artist's masterpiece. The details, the shading, the buildings, even the shadows that they cast were scrawled in this small notebook. I suddenly began to feel like I'm fallen into this sketch. The yellowed edges of the paper swallow my peripheral. The pencil lines envelop the rest of my vision. And when I blink again, I'm still looking at the drawing. Only this time, it's the original. We charcoal lines, blurred people and ominous gallows. There's a hand resting on my shoulder. And somehow I didn't need to turn round to know it's Madame Norna. Ma, Madam. I turn round slowly, painting still in my grasp and observe her gentle gaze and breathy a smile tugging at her lips. I checked if what had happened had 
actually just happened. But when I glanced out of the shop window and noticed it was dark outside when it had been midday before, I guessed that it had. That's the last time Algie had drawn in the shop more than a cursory glance. The madam inquired if I'd seen everything I'd wanted to. I answered that I'd seen more. I glanced down at the painting and after shuddering visibly, I put it back where I'd found it. As we both wound our way down the pathway to the front counter, I asked the madam if she missed her life. The one I'd seen, with the big family, small town and well-meaning if not misled parents. She contemplated a while before answering. Yes and no, she explained. She missed her friends, even her family sometimes. But not the wasted life many other women for her time were forced to have. She'd become more than just a draper's wife. More than just a daughter, wife and mother. The last question I asked was how the madams had escaped the witch trials. She threw me a sly look, as if the answer was obvious. Why would real witches let themselves be caught? Thank you for listening to episode 17 of The Antique Shop. Episode 18 will be released in two weeks' time. But the curve of the blackened lines and the smoothing of the shadow gave it an anticip- anticipating depth. <laughs> what, what the hell's an anticipating depth? The blackened charcoal lines show a town square, surrounded all sides. Surrounded all sides. <laughs> There's a word missing there. The one thing that stands out is the object. I think I've smacked that microphone. What a rookie mistake, smacking the microphone. But slowly, the edges of the fuck. <laughs> edges of the frame, not the edges of the fuck. I would choose to record this episode on like the fucking hottest day of the year. Oh, in an attic. <laughs> well done. The customer sat on one of <laughs> The gentle pencil lines envelope the rest of my vision. Envelope. En- en- it is envelope, isn't it? <laughs> envelope! Envelope is what you put letters in. Envelope is what you are surrounded by. I understand now. <laughs> oh, words are hard. But not the wasted life many other women for our time were forced to have. And that's a fucking tractor. This is my historical themed episode per podcast. Um, I also did one when I was doing the McElroy statements and I thought, oh, I may as well take the, t- the opportunity to do one now. So yes, a small historical note about the witch trials. Um, so Margaret Aitken, which I did mention in the episode, was a real woman in the second witch trials in Scotland, which were in 1597 and was the second of five witch trials that were done in Scotland over a period of about 200 years. So everything I said about her in the episode is true. She was accused of being a witch and in the hopes of reprieve she said she could identify other witches. So she was paraded around Scotland identifying people that were witches, which was obviously nobody, uh, but the church still took her at her word and people died, as they always do. Uh, and it wasn't until they got to Glasgow that things began to go pear-shaped for Margaret Aitken. So the people of Glasgow, savvy as we are, either began to be suspicious or were just cynical from the beginning about her abilities 
and decided to test them. So what would happen um, was that people would be brought in front of Margaret and she would identify which ones were witches. So what the people of Glasgow did was they put the same people in front of her twice but dressed differently each time. And predictably, one time they'd be a witch and the next time they wouldn't be. So once this was revealed, the uh, the witch trial essentially was skewered. It essentially died. Uh, and But unfortunately for poor Margaret, she was uh, killed anyway. So yes, as everyone who's been listening to my podcasts for a while now knows that I'm obsessed with witches. Uh, not so much the witch trials. I didn't actually know how bad they were in Scotland. I knew that we we were pretty bad, but I didn't quite realise we had five and it lasted for so long as well. So yeah, witch trials, I, I, ha- I do find them quite fascinating, um, the, the witch trials. Um, and I didn't want to miss the opportunity as a Scottish person doing a supernatural podcast to include them in my, you know, historical episode of the season. So if you're interested in learning more about the history of witchcraft in Scotland, then I recommend the Witch Hunt podcast by BBC Radio Scotland, which I listened to in preparation for this episode. It was incredibly informative and cleared up a lot of misconceptions that I had about the witch trials and probably everybody has because it's been kind of warped in popular culture. So yeah, that's the Witch Hunt podcast from BBC Radio Scotland. It's about seven episodes long, six or seven episodes, and it's um, it covers the witch trials right from the first one up until the last one, and it talks with people who are you know experts on um, society, sixteenth century society, seventeenth century society, and yeah, experts on witchcraft in general. To be honest with you, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you tune in next time.